Today's episode of Dungeon Crawlers Radio is brought to you by Gamers Inn, your one-stop location for all your gaming needs. Located in Lehigh City, Utah, their fun and friendly staff will be more than happy to answer any of your gaming needs. Just remember, Gamers Inn, it's where adventures begin. Broadcasting live from the DCR studio. Oh, yeah! The Geek Revolution starts here. Excellent! Get ready for the number one hit geek radio show out there. Well, it is impressive, isn't it? Because it's time for Dungeon Crawlers Radio. All right, everyone, welcome to Dungeon Crawlers. We are sitting in the bowels of the Marriott Hotel. Uh, for here for LTUE to talk to author DJ Butler, who, you know, if you haven't known him, well, you should, because he's been on the show before talking about Clockwork Charlie, Witchy Eye, uh, Redneck Eldritch stories, as well as Rock Band versus Evil. And what is more exciting is coming out in April is Witchy Winter, so the sequel to uh, which, yeah, which I have a copy, but I haven't been able to read because it just came in yesterday. But now we're going to talk about because the cover looks amazing. Um, so what happens in Witchy Winter? So um, so I'm going to assume that, that, that if you're listening uh, that you've read uh, Witchy Eye. So uh, if you haven't... Uh, you must. Uh, yes, and, and now is the time to stop if you want to avoid spoilers. So uh, the way Witchy Eye wound up, uh, so Witchy Eye is, is the story of Sarah Calhoun, who one day learns she has a secret inheritance. She is uh, not, not the daughter of the elector Iron Andy Calhoun, but, the, but a foster child. And her real parents are the dead king of the mound builder kingdom Cahokia, and, uh, sorry, the, uh, yeah, and the, um, the empress mad Hannah Penn, and uh, uh, recently murdered by her brother. Uh, the Emperor Lord Thomas, and uh, and the way Witchy Eye winds up is she's she's learned she has two siblings, uh, and uh, she's gathered some allies. Uh, she reconnects with some of the inheritance of her dead father in the form of collecting his his regalia, the uh, the physical items that made up his uh, symbols of kingship. Uh, which were a, a, a mysterious golden sword uh, and a, a an orb uh, and a crown, uh, and uh, and and resolves to to ride north into the Ohio to to take back her kingdom. That's the end of end of book one. So book two follows um, several threads. Uh, uh, three three main ones are first of all Sarah uh, riding into Mound Builder Kingdom. Uh, territory, learning uh, more about this mysterious culture she doesn't know, learning more about her father who becomes a more complex figure. Uh, he goes from being the sort of Jesse James outlaw folk hero to to someone who's got some levels of kind of priesthood happening uh, and who was uh, maybe a bit of an outlaw or rebel himself in some of the things he did. Um, uh, so we follow Sarah in, in Tikahokia. Uh, a second thread we follow is uh, 
we uh, connect with one of her two. She, she's a she's a triplet. They're triplets, uh, and they existed only as names in book one. In book two, we start to see one of them, uh, whose name is Nathaniel, and we don't know him uh, as her sister at first, but as a as a foundling cared for by the Earl of Johnsland, a foundling who is tortured by voices he hears constantly, which when the, when the pressure from the voices builds up sufficiently, he has epileptic fits. Uh, and, it's, uh, and so one of the plot threads is about his, uh, his healing, uh, uh, which is uh, brought about uh, in, because of his actions, uh, because, of, uh, because of sort of attacks on him, uh, and also uh, uh, because there's, a, there's a, an Ojibwe named Maingon, uh, a man from uh, the, the sort of what we call Minnesota, but north of, north of the uh, um, Chicago German territory, uh, who, who has a child born outside of the proper liturgy, a child who, who uh, is not properly brought into the people at birth and who therefore suffers. And, and Maingan is sent by his Manidu, his personal divinity, to go rescue uh, Nathaniel. Nathaniel will heal himself uh, to be able to heal the child. And then the third thread picks up uh, on a, on a storyline in book one uh, so again, this, this if you haven't read book one, I'm just like throwing down spoilers left, right, and center. But you, you know, I warned you. So uh, in book one, one thing that happens is that uh, the bishop of New Orleans, who is a truly saintly man, uh, is murdered, and he is murdered by uh, by the Chevalier of New Orleans uh, with some imperial accomplices, and uh, and and before he uh, is murdered. Uh, and, and precipitating his murder, the bishop curses the Chevalier of New Orleans. Uh, and he curses him. The, uh, the curse includes, uh, this is in, in classic New Testament form, he takes off his sandal and he dusts his, dust off his sandal in the, you know, the lobby of the Chevalier's Palais. Uh, but the curse says, you know, if you strike me down, uh, my successor will plague you even worse. So we see the bishop's successor in book two. Uh, and it's a bit of a surprise candidate. It's, uh, the, the bishop has two sons, uh, Chigozi Ukwu, who is the good son, dutiful, a priest like his father, and Etienne Ukwu, who is a gangster, a money lender, a uh, whoremaster, and gambler, and Etienne becomes the bishop of New Orleans. And so, uh, so it's read through book two and into book three, which I'm writing now, is about the war in which Etienne is trying hell-bent to avenge his father, uh, Etienne is also a, a voodoo uh, hungan. He's a, he's a priest and sorcerer. Uh, so, uh, and the chevaliers, of course, in, in turn, trying to kill the bishop. So New Orleans breaks out into this, this kind of uh, war of, uh, of assassinations and demolition and, and gang action and prison break uh, between its, uh, its, its two leaders, the bishop and the chevalier. So there's actually a lot more going on. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the three big plot threads Sarah and her team, Nathaniel in John's land, and Etienne Uku. Now, is it, it's, it's got to be kind of interesting pulling back because it's not really alternate history because but it's still, you know, using places we know, you know, yep. Louisiana, stuff like that. Yep. So how is it manipulating and twisting that around to fit in this epic saga you're weaving? Yeah, uh, it, is, it is fun. Um, I get to do things like take um, uh, 
my favorite melody, not my favorite lyric. My favorite melody is the song Shenandoah. Okay. I just think the melody is gorgeous. The words, they exist in multiple versions, but basically two versions. There's the original, which is extremely politically incorrect. Uh, it, is a, it is a ballad. It's a story song uh, coming from, it's it got nothing to do with, despite the name Shenandoah, it's got nothing to do with Virginia. Shenandoah is the name of an Indian princess or an Indian chief in the early songs, uh, and, and it comes from the Missouri River. As, as, the, as the chorus, the repeated refrain would make you think. So uh, there are these old politically correct versions, which you can find online, but you don't hear them anymore because uh, they involve things like the Yankee skipper giving fire water to the Indian chief so he can get him drunk and take away his daughter, right? That's not, we, we don't tell stories like that anymore. No. So, um, or you hear these sort of neutered versions where all you hear are the verses that are content-free. I long to see you, I long to see you, I long to hear you, I lo right? There's nothing in, the, um, uh, in those versions. So, so, uh, so, I, so I rewrote, I restored a narrative to the song, um, but one that is, you know, less, uh, doesn't, doesn't have the kind of harsh, uh, sort of, you know, you, we might say racist kind of overtones of the original, but which then fits uh, into uh, part of my world building. That's, that, that is just a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, I like playing uh, with, uh, with real people like uh, Benjamin Franklin and his grandson, Temple Franklin. Temple is a character in, the, uh, in book two uh, and subsequent books. He's the, the eminence grise, the Machiavel, the, the, the uh, ruthless advisor of uh, Thomas Penn the Emperor. Uh, and uh, and he's, he's basically, a, uh, without meaning to be this way, he's a complete traitor to his grandfather's various legacies. Um, and uh, uh, so, so yeah, I love it. I mean, this is this is the I love everything I write. This is, I think, um, without a doubt, my favorite thing to write. So, you've kind of made it into the realm with Bane. Uh, you know, you're you're up there. You've gone on tour with Larry Correa. They're doing amazing stuff with your your covers. You see the books at like every bookstore now, which is awesome. What does that feel like? Because, I mean, before, you know, you've been mucking in the trenches, uh, doing the thing that you do as a writer to, to get known and stuff like that. Now it kind of seems like the gears have shifted where it's starting to be where the publisher's helping you out more and stuff like that. How does that feel? Because, I mean, we've all been there where, you know, we're doing our stuff. I mean, how does that transition feel? Uh, it's wonderful. I feel very lucky. I, I firmly believe to succeed as a writer, y you must have luck. Mm -hmm. um, and and that is, that's a hard thing to say because some people work really, really hard and they never, it never happens for them. Um, and I have had luck before this. Uh, I've, I've been picked up by agents that I was very happy about. I've, I've, I've had a publishing deal with Random House, which is exciting. Um, what is what is new, and you describe it as being uh, brought into the realm. You know that's not wrong. That's that's a that's a good description. I uh, Bain Bain has been um, from the beginning of our relationship. They've been really good about being willing to make a bet on me. Uh, they made a bet on putting out a hardcover, on on putting out great art on the books, um, and and I and I I too was willing to make bets uh, using my own resources to go travel and market and sell uh, and proactively trying to find ways to you know sell the book that's that's the goal sell the yeah. book find get readers who will read the book and enjoy it and come back and buy more 
for all the reasons you want to write a book, you got to try and sell it too. Um, and as we've been successful, Bain's been willing to uh, come back and bet more. So, um, so yeah, they they're now. Uh, so, for example, I uh, went and 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 Bain set up, and I had a great meeting with the book buyer Barnes and Noble uh, last October. Uh, along with some Simon & Schuster sales folks and, and, and uh, reviewers from some of the big uh, uh, literary magazines. Um, in April, the week that Witchy Winter comes out, I'm going to be at the Texas uh, Librarians Association meeting in Dallas. Uh, and then at Silicon Valley Comic Con in San Jose. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bain is, is, is uh, putting together this stuff or, or supporting me in it. Um, and, uh, and, and it's uh, very, very exciting. And I'll say this on the podcast, even though I haven't, I've, I've told people this verbally, I haven't really put it in writing anywhere. Um, but, but they've also uh, offered to extend the series to six books. Which is which is a which is a really big deal. It's there, it's, and we're talking about other books they might buy from me. So I do feel like I'm in in the realm. I, I feel like I'm still an, an up and coming guy, um, but uh, I have always been willing to invest. And the great piece of luck now is that I have found a publisher partner that is also willing to invest, and we have been successful uh, in in reaching new readers. So I'm Dan. I am I am thrilled. Now, I mean, that's awesome news that now this is six books. So that means the story can even flourish and extend beyond that. And who knows if there's even side stories you're going to want to write. I mean, it, this seems to be your epic fantasy, you know, like Brandon Sanderson has his, uh, you know, Stormlight Archive or something like that. It seems like this is yours. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely right. I said... Um I said in an interview uh, with a BYU, BYU has a kids radio program, and I said, uh, we did a radio interview a few weeks ago, and actually the first, I think they're putting out three 15-minute episodes, I think the first one's tomorrow, actually, uh, and one of the things I said about this series is, this is my bid to be J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, Tolkien wrote, um, he wrote a mythology for England that was explicitly Christian um, using England's real bones, uh, Germanic legend and language, uh, as well as other things he built for it. Um, this is my bid to do the same for America. Well, I like that. I like that comparison. Um, and it, the book is fun. It's entertaining. It pulls you through. I mean, most, there's books out there where you're just like, oh, man, i got to read the next page. Eh, I can maybe do that later. But the book just pulls you through. Uh, it's, it's a fun ride, which is always a great book, um, at least in my opinion. I don't know. Well, other people have different opinions. But uh, where, I mean, where did this idea start? Because, I mean, it is kind of this weird, random I have no clue where this went. You know, was it just, oh, throwing ideas and seeing what stuck on the dartboard? Or was it just something that was germinating in the back of your head for all these years? Yeah, uh, two things. This is a story about three children and their connection with their father and his legacy. And their mother and her legacy, too. Um, I have three children. Uh, my second daughter, when she was couple months old in a car seat. My brother Sam was kind of, you know, hanging out and talking baby talk with her or whatever they were doing. And he called us in the next room and said, hey, um, 
I think something's wrong. Uh, look at her eyes. And we came in and looked, and she had one pupil way more dilated than the other. And we thought, oh, somehow our baby got a concussion. You know, what, what is this? So we, we rushed her in. Uh, and it is a, I don't remember the name of it, but it is a neurological condition uh, that is utterly harmless and occurs in a minority of people. Uh, and she still ha she'll have it all her life. Um, it doesn't cause her any irritation. It's totally cosmetic, but her pupils dilate at a different rate. So if you look into my daughter's eyes, they are not the same size. Hmm. Uh, and, and you never notice it. And then like one day you go, what? Uh, and you realize that, you know, it looks a little freaky. So, uh, so I was calling her witchy eye from a very young age. Um, my son uh, was born uh, and he was pressed against the wall uh, in, in utero. And so he was born with one ear pinned to the side of his head. Uh, and it, it ultimately, I mean, early, it, it detached from his head. Uh, not, it didn't come off, but I mean, it unfolded. Uh, but if you look at him, you know, all humans have asymmetrical faces. Part of his asymmetry is he has basically one ear that lies flat and one that is perpendicular to his head. Um, and, and then my, my third child is, uh, uh, has uh, hair that, she has an aunt with hair like this, but neither her mother nor I have hair like it at all. I've, we've got pretty straight hair and she has just intensely curly hair. Um, so, uh, so look, the three children in this story, um, are again, I'm just assuming you've read book one. They, they are, and if you haven't, you, at this point, you're way over the waterfall. So uh, they are born after their father dies and they're conceived uh, supernaturally, magically. Uh, they're uh, by acorns. Uh, with his dying blood, uh, their father anoints three acorns, sends them back to uh, his wife. She eats them and she conceives these triplets. And each of them effectively is born with an acorn embedded in their body, one in her eye, one in her ear, and one with an acorn tied up in her hair. And those are, those, those body parts sort of manifest three different um, kinds of superpower. Sarah, uh, as you know from book one, uh, ha has, once she kind of connects with, uh, once the acorn is freed, she has supernatural powers of sight. Uh, her brother Nathaniel uh, is tortured by a supernatural hearing until he is properly initiated and gains the power to sort of dominate it, in which case, at which point it becomes a, a healing gift. Uh, and their sister, um, well, I won't give the spoiler, uh, their sister has power related to her hair uh, because she, for, for her, the acorn is, is tangled up her hair. So one piece of this is my desire to tell kind of a folk tale, fairy tale about my children. Mm -hmm. The other piece is, at the moment when I was looking to write this book and thinking, oh, I'll tell a fairy tale about my kids, there were several things I was reading, and they all clicked together and, and, and became the basis uh, for the books. So I was reading Grimm's fairy tales to my kids at night. And I love the Grimm fairy tale setting. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of, when I was a kid, it always felt very whimsical uh, and, and, and sort of uh, surreal. You've got Lord Mayors who are interacting with uh, traveling bands of musicians, and there's also an emperor and princesses, even though there's mayors, and what kind of place is this? Um, so I was reading this to them, and, and at the same time, I was reading, I think it was maybe uh, C.V. Wedgwood's History of the Thirty Years' War. Um, and 
and it clicked and it's embarrassing that I was almost I was in my 30s when I realized this the setting because it should be obvious the setting for the the grim fairy tales is early modern Germany that's that's it absolutely makes sense there with you know the seven electorates and you get you know bishops who are electors and you get princes and you do have lord mayors and free imperial towns and all this and I said oh this that's cool I get it I I I should set my story of these three children in early modern Germany. I'll, I'll do a bunch of research. And I, I went and did. I read books about the Holy Roman Empire and all this stuff. Um, but at the same time, I also read a, a, a history of early America by a historian named David Hackett Fisher. And the book is called Albion's Seed. And it is about the English migrations into uh, North America. Migrations, plural. Because we think about the English coming and, oh yes, I have English ancestry, the English came. Well, no, the English came in four distinct waves. And they, they brought four distinct cultures from distinct parts of England with them. That's the point of this book. It's a 900-page work of historical anthropology. So the first wave were Puritans from Southeast England, and they settled in the Massachusetts Bay, and they brought with them the names and the marriage customs and the religion and the building styles and everything else from Essex and Kent and Southeast England. Um, now, these guys are Puritans, and they came because they were fleeing persecution, and they wanted to be the ones who were persecuting instead, right? And, uh, and so when, when Cromwell takes over, uh, some of them go back. Uh, who is now out of favor are the uh, royalists, uh, people who are Anglican and not Puritan, uh, and are uh, heavily concentrated in southwest England rather than southeast. And they come, and the Massachusetts Bay is full, so they go to the Chesapeake. And this is where you get the culture of uh, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, uh, and, and Georgia, south, the southeast coast. Uh, and they have different religion, and they have different distribution of names, and they marry a different way, and they eat different food, and they dress differently. And they had different ideas about government and liberty. Um, later, you get the Quakers. You know, William Penn gets the land grant, the Delaware Valley and, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and at a certain point, Quakers come. And again, they're a different culture. They speak English, but they're a different culture. And ultimately, the Scotch-Irish, and he calls them the North British borderers, but we're talking about the same people, uh, show up. Uh, and basically, the whole seaboard is full of white people already, yeah. right? So they keep going until they get past all the white people and they get to the mountains and they, they fill the Appalachian Mountains in. And so you have that, that culture that's distributed all along the seaboard on the mountains, inland. And, and I read that and, and I thought, wow, I really wish that role-playing settings and fantasy novel settings were this detailed. Because yeah. each of those cultures gets 200 pages of description and drawing and map. Um, and then I thought, you know, you know what, this should be the setting. This is, I, I'm going to use this and I'm going to treat American cultures for, uh, as you would treat any fantasy culture in a novel, right? As something to explore and interact with as kind of a, as kind of a collective character. And, and, and this was all happening at the same time. And, and at a certain point I said, okay, well, I, this, these are, these are not two different ideas a fairy tale in early modern Germany and a story set in early America. This is one. The fairy tale where it belongs is in, uh, is in Flintlock, America. Um, and so, uh, and so the, the, first of all, the word America never appears. In, in, in two books, it has not appeared. It doesn't appear in book three either. But, but, uh, but the America, the empire, the setting is, is organized something like um, 
the Holy Roman Empire. It's not as organic. It didn't grow up as a series of personal land holdings. There is a compact, a 1784 Philadelphia compact, but it creates an empire with unevenly distributed electors and, and rights that, uh, that are, it's, pre it's preserved little local rights everywhere and crystallized them into a system that says, here's how we elect an emperor and, and what he does. So it's, it's, uh, it's my vision of America as the Holy Roman Empire uh, with, uh, with this fairy tale of my kids in it. Okay, so this sounds like an epic like game system already. I mean, just you describing it, you know, D&D, &D, stuff like that, this would be a fantastic. So if any game designers out there, contact Dave. I mean, literally, this would be an awesome game setting set in the, the Americas. I mean, most of the stuff we have now that is is either post-apocalyptic zombies or it's, you know, somewhere else, you know, like Europe or Asia, stuff, stuff like that. We don't have anything here. So this would be kind of epic to have that. And then... You know, Roman Empire is always awesome. That's something I always enjoyed in, in history and stuff like that. And to have that here, uh, you know, again, that's why I kind of think I love this book just because I love that type of stuff. I could feel that that vibe coming from it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, six books is fantastic. That's amazing. But if you guys have not read Witchy Eye or any of, you know, Dave or DJ Butler's stuff... Uh, you need to. I mean, uh, if you have younger kids, Clockwork Charlie is a fantastic book series, which is finished out at three, if yeah, I remember right. Book three comes out this fall. Okay. So you have two to catch up on before it comes out. So that would be fantastic for your kids. Uh, if you like something whimsical and funny uh, that involves demons and rock m music, you know, Rock Band versus Evil is fantastic. But this just seems to be... I'm sure you're going to write some other awesome epic thing later on, but this kind of seems to be the pinnacle of all the writing. It's fantastic. It's rich. It's vibrant. There's so many different characters, um, which is fantastic. I mean, most fantasy out there, you have kind of the traditional guys, but you have kind of this weird way of to twist that just enough to make it different. Like this bishop guy, you know, in in the second book, he be, he's like the worst guy possible it's like al capone suddenly became you know the pope over in rome yep that's right so, i mean where did I, where does that idea come from i mean literally why but it's, it's like oh my gosh now i need to read this to find out everything this horrible guy does well a lot of it um i mean i'm sure that's what happened over in england quite a bit Oh, well, sure. You look at the history of the popes, you know, uh, and, or, or cardinals or bishops uh, anywhere, right? Pa power corrupts. Yeah. Um, uh, also, uh, you know, this is, this is a setting built on the real bones of America as I know them. One of the real uh, bones of America is the Bible. Um, many, many Americans have believed that they are still living in the biblical epic. Many Americans still believe that. Uh, and so a story about America that does not deeply reckon with the Bible is false. So Wichii and sequels attempts to deeply reckon with the Bible. Um, and so it plays games with theology. It explores uh, the meaning of, of 
some loaded terms like handmade and beloved. Um, and it connects with and retells parables. And fundamentally, with the bishop, what you have is an exploration of the parable of the good son, right? Uh, it's, uh, because what happens is, uh, well, I'm, this is spoilers for book two a little bit, but um, when the bad son returns and takes over his father's inheritance, the good son leaves. The good son, the good son can't handle this. Yeah. He sees this as a corruption of what his father wanted and a desecration of a holy office, and uh, and, and so so it is. It's, it's the parable. It's this parable of the good son, and then and then we explore what happens with the the bad son taking revenge for his father's death, and the good sons uh, trying to find a new purpose and find a new ministry in sort of an unexpected place on the frontier. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, uh, you know, not to make myself sound like I don't, like I'm just retelling other people's stories. But but there is a there is a lot of um, there is a lot of Bible in which I not preachy, never preachy. Yeah. But there has to be, or it can't be a book about America. Yeah. Now, do you envision there may be future time? I mean, I mean, this is kind of early Flintlock. Could there be Western, you know, 1800s or, you know, modern day? I mean, literally, it seems like you can go anywhere with this. Yeah. Um, I can see right now writing prequel books about Lucky John Churchill, who, uh, who drove Oliver Cromwell out of England and, uh, and turned England back to paganism. Uh, I can say and establish the House of Spencer, um, and those would be you know about a century and a half, century, century and a half earlier in the setting. I can see uh, an epic about the prophet Onondagos, thousand years earlier, uh, more than a thousand years earlier, bringing uh, the firstborn west into the new world after their original homeland sinks beneath the waves. Uh, we learn about this in book two. It's, um, they're from a lost land that once lay between Britain and Denmark, which is a real lost land, yeah. by the way. Um, that's their homeland. And when it sank uh, because of the destructive activity of a river god, uh, they came west uh, and, uh, and made allies with the Lenny Lenape uh, and uh, the peaceful red-haired giants of the north uh, and ultimately had a schism. Uh, and I think, there's, I think there are books to write there. I think there, there are side stories. Um, I think some of these characters are going to survive, but in, but in ways where they can still have uh, lots of adventures. Uh, and, uh, and I haven't thought as much about the future. Um, sort of because of the way, at this point, I expect the books to end. Um, so you read book one, or I'm assuming you've read book one. You know, one of the things driving action here is that the Mississippi and Ohio rivers are ruled by an ancient god known to folklore as the Heron King. And he has two faces, and they alternate. And there is the long-lived face of Peter Plowshare, who gives the gifts of civilization. He teaches three sisters agriculture. He, uh, he cures disease. Uh, he builds roads. Um, he, he restrains wild beast kind. Uh, 
Uh, and, and then there is the short-lived, violent, destructive, angry face, Simon Sword. And so part of the action that kicks off book one here is strange messengers from Missouri saying Simon the Peter Plowshare is dead, um, which is really ominous, but no one understands it. Uh, and, um, and part of the continuing action is, is we see the institutions that have been built to try to restrain Simon Sword have fallen apart. And people trying to re-find them and, uh, and forge alliances that have gone lost uh, and recover missing knowledge. Um, uh, but I expect a happy ending, which is to say the, the plan is that, that Simon Sword will die in book six and his son, Peter Plowshare, will return. So, um, so I don't know what future sequels would look like. You know, it, it might have to be future like 50 years later or 100 years later, yeah. right? Uh, uh, or you know, later and elsewhere in the continent. So we're, we're, we're be, or maybe that's it. Maybe it's maybe it's just a future future story, but it's not set in the Mississippi and Ohio, you know, uh, drainage basin, which is like. A huge chunk of the yeah. continent. Maybe it's set in New Muscovy in the Northwest or or the Pueblo or something. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I love the setting, and there's just you know, um, America is too complex for any human being to know it really, really well, uh, and uh, and all of that hides beneath a a mass market, uh, mass media culture that is that is aggressively in the interest of money, trying to destroy everything else. Um, I would love to keep exploring the, the bones of America. No, oh, sounds fantastic. Uh, even the ideas of all the past stories. So, uh, Anyways, folks, April, must buy. Pick up uh, Witchy Winter. If you haven't already picked up Witchy Eye, excuse me, if you already haven't picked up Witchy Eye and you've sat through this whole thing, well, still read it because it's worth it. There's still a lot of stuff I didn't say. Yeah, there's lots of stuff that is uh, not has not been spoken, and you must read it. Pick up Dave's other stuff, and uh, definitely help support him so he can continue writing more and more fantastic novels uh, in this series and in others. And uh, with that said, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Dan. You're listening to Dungeon Crawlers Radio. Please subscribe and follow them on Facebook or Twitter pages. No, we're even promoting these filthy idiots who doesn't like them, who doesn't like anyone. Our friends, brothers, our friends. No, shut up. Please subscribe.